Thank you, Catherine, for leading with such integrity. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Uh, we have a bit of a change of theme from uh, the last few weeks. I hope that you're not too disappointed. <laughs> I, um, I may try not to mention the S word for the whole sermon. But um, we're still following uh, the same theme uh, in terms of being who we are, of being who we are, living up to that new identity that we have in Jesus. So let me ask you uh, one or two questions. How do you define your identity? Do you define your identity by what is around you? Uh, so I, I'm a northerner, I live in a rural market town. Do we define our identity in some way by that? What you do or what you have done is an absolutely key thing, isn't it? What's one of the first questions that we say to someone when we meet them for the first time? Well, what do you do? And people normally say, I am a this or that, or I used to be. I used to be a this or that or the other. Or often people say, I'm just a, which is always slightly concerning. You're not a just or anything, are you? Whatever you might be doing or not doing. Maybe we define ourselves by what we own. Because in the world, what we own here as the top 1% is significantly important. So do we define ourselves by what make of car we have, what type of house we live in, how many bikes we have, whatever it might be? Do we define ourselves by what we own? Do we define ourselves actually by what we hide? We define ourselves by the things that we know about ourselves, but that other people maybe don't know. But is that how we define ourselves? So do everybody else, you might be random choice of profession, a school teacher. But actually inside yourself, you think, actually, I define myself as a failure, as someone who can never amount to much. How do we define ourselves? Who defines you? Who are you? Are you fat face? Are you white stuff? Are you M&S or Hollister? Are you Tesco's or Morrison's? Oh, Aldi. <laughs> Who are you? Today's service is mostly brought to you by the next sale of about 12 years ago. <laughs> Who are you? Who is Paul? Paul is a Roman citizen. He is a Jew. He is someone transformed by his encounter with Jesus Christ. He is an apostle of Christ, and that's a key title for him, particularly in this letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one sent by God to do God's mission. Who he is defines everything about Paul's priorities and his behavior, who we are, will also do that. Some of us are suffering from a bit of an identity crisis, aren't we? I wonder how many roles most of us have. I am a minister, I am a wife, I am a mum. On alternate days of the week, I think. <laughs> I am a pet owner. Within the, each of those roles are many other roles. And sometimes the expectations of each one of our different roles conflict with one another as our differing spheres of life bang into one another. And then, of course, there's our faith, isn't there? And how does that all work together? 
On occasions, we get so confused about who we are that we become like identity chameleons, always trying to blend in to the environment we find ourselves. Every so often, I force myself to listen to one of my sermons. It's a horrible experience, but a good practice. And I listen to my voice, and I always wonder why the rest of you don't walk out every week. And I'm a bit southern, and I'm a bit northern, and I'm a bit generally confused. But I've, I've kind of tried to blend in. And in different environments, I find myself blending in more or less. But do we do that with the rest of our lives as well? So desperate to fit in that if we're careful, we have nothing to bring. Because all we do is reflect what is rather than bring something new to it. Some of us maybe are suffering from identity theft. What we once were is no longer who we are now. Maybe once we were passionate for Jesus, really just full of him, really clear about what it meant to follow him and, and time's gone on and life has gone on and actually we think, yeah, I'm not that person anymore. We, we're not who we were. Perhaps things have, have changed within us. We are not who we could be either. We see what we could be but we are no longer that or we haven't lived into it. We are no longer who we could be. I, uh, from time to time, review books for Christianity magazine. Not so long ago, I got sent a book which um, I think was called 100% Christian or 100% Christianity. 100% Christian, I think. And um, I started reading it, and, and generally I quite like the books I'm sent, but on this occasion, I really didn't like it. And it was really hard work reading it, and it was really hard trying to think of anything nice to write about it. Not that reviews have to be nice, you understand. But he did use a great example at the beginning of the book. And it's an example about Lego. Now, Lego features quite highly in, in my life, mainly cleaning it up uh, and buying it for birthday presents. And he talked about the image of a white Lego tower as being like our lives, a white Lego tower. And then, and then there's our faith in Jesus. And it's like a red brick that we bolt onto the outside of the white Lego tower. And of course, what he was saying was, well, that's not how it's meant to be, is it? It's not meant to be that your faith in Jesus, your relationship with him is bolted on to the edge of your life. But that if you could rebuild the tower, the red would run like Blackpool through the Blackpool rock. That your faith would be the DNA of the tower it would be right in the middle of it, integral to everything that we are. And of course, what can be true of us as individuals can also be true of us as a church and the church of Jesus Christ. That we lose our identity, we lose our purpose, we lose our sense of calling, we become confused, bereft, robbed of our identity in Christ and the challenge of 1 Corinthians is that we remember who we are and we live in the light of who we are. The Corinthian culture, of course, was quite similar to our own. I think that we've um, said enough about that over the last couple of weeks, probably to last a lifetime, or at least a ministry lifetime, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, they talked a lot about rights because they were free. Then they were free in Christ, and that gave them a lot of rights, and they talked little about responsibilities 
Of course, there's always a tension between those two things, isn't there? Rights and some of the stuff that's coming around human rights has been really, really important to the well-being of human beings in our world. But when we go too far along that line of rights, we become arrogant and stubborn. Responsibility must be a key word for this weekend with the Queen, mustn't it? Someone who's conducted her entire life out of a sense of duty and responsibility. But again, if you go too far down that line, and, and I've watched people do this at times, you become like a doormat, and pretty soon you start to feel resentful. Why does no one else do anything? Why is it always me that has to be re responsible? Why won't anyone else ever notice that things need doing? Why is my whole life subsumed by responsibility to everybody else? And those are the, the two extreme points. And we live with this kind of tension between rights and responsibilities. Paul was really clear about his rights. He was a child of God. He was an apostle of Christ. But he was also really clear about his responsibilities. And he was prepared to lay down his rights for the greater responsibilities of the gospel what motivates us in our life? Is it me? Is it about my life, my stuff, my family, my career, my holidays? Yeah, I think that's it, actually. <laughs> Are we motivated by guilt? Always being driven to do stuff because we feel guilty and we think that one day if we could just do enough things, be good enough, we, we could deal with that guilt. Is it our anxiety? Well, you know, I've got to do it like this because then people will like me, people will value me, I will feel important. Is that the motivation behind the things that we do, a sense of anxiety? Is it failure? Failure may motivate us to do or, or not to do. Well, I tried that. I've tried that. I did that. It, it didn't work out. I, I'm not, I'm not going to go there again because... Because before it didn't work out. Is it our pride? What motivates us? Is it Jesus? By the way, the answer is yes, it's church. It's always yes. <laughs> is it Jesus? Is it? Is it Jesus? Is it the conviction of the calling that God has put on each one of us to be his people wherever he's put us. That applies to everyone, by the way. Is it people? Is it our compassion for them? Our love for them? We see their needs, their need for Jesus. What are our priorities, both individually and together as a church? What are they? Paul, in this passage, in verse uh, 22, says this, I have become all things to all people, that by some possible means I might save some. All things to all people. I like this image. Is this what it means? Does it mean that every morning when you wake up, faceless, <laughs> that you choose your mask for the day? Well, I mean, there's probably a little bit of truth in that, isn't there? Is it pretending? Is that what Paul's talking about, being all things to all people? Is it just pretending? I pretend I like you. 
pretend I understand you. I pretend everything. Is it some kind of acting? I mean, some of, some of you are great at acting. I'm, I'm not very good at that. But is it that? Is it we act? We act a certain way? Is that what Paul means? You act a certain way? Is it, is it more than that? Is it more than that? The message version of this uh, verse is great, actually. And it really, I think, helps us to get a sense of what Paul is talking about. Because he says this, I didn't take on their way of life. Well, that's really key, isn't it? I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. I kept my bearings in Christ. But I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I didn't take on their way of life. I didn't become exactly like them. I kept my bearings in Christ. Now, once upon a time, I had some compass skills. If you get lost with me now, you will probably remain lost. (laughs) But I know that even in quite relatively simple conditions, a compass and the ability to use it, (laughs) maybe more than the compass, uh, is really important. So even on the top of Ingleborough, because it's kind of a flat plateau. As soon as the cloud comes down or the mist comes in, I've been there and gone. Oh, let's walk over to the cairn. Walked over to the cairn. The mist has come down, turn around. Gone, oh, we came from that way. Walked off in that way. It's routinely Mike who's with me going, uh-uh. <laughs> we didn't come from that way. So yeah, we did. We definitely did. He's like, no, we really didn't. Yeah, we did. Just a nice discussion. <laughs> then we get the compass out, because the compass tells the truth, doesn't it? It says, I kept my bearings in Christ. I knew exactly where I was. I wasn't just influenced by everything around me. I entered their world. You can't just stay away from everybody's world. You have to be in it. Try to experience things from their point of view to a servant-hearted approach. Somebody said this, Paul's slavery to Christ is expressed in the form of submitting himself in various ways to the cultural structures and limitations of the people he hopes to reach with the gospel. So, little question for you. How do we actually do that? Quite like to finish the sermon there, really. How do we actually do that? Because it it sounds great, but but how do we actually do it? Maybe not a good point to say, I don't know. Okay. So here's some suggestions. First of all, we try to find common ground with everyone. So if one of you wants cheese and the other one wants bread, a cheese sandwich is a really good way forward, isn't it? Try to find common ground with people. Or maybe another way of of looking at that is see what God is already doing in people and go there. Go with him. Paul says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To those under law, I became as one of those under law. And we go, oh yeah, yeah, that's really good. Paul was a Jew. 
He didn't really have to try very hard. He was a Jew. He was someone under law. So when he says, I became, it was like, well, yeah. You know, that's really important because sometimes we make it really hard for ourselves. But first of all, Paul spoke the gospel to the people he was like, not the people he wasn't like. So where do we have our natural groups where we have common ground? Where's that group for us? So I don't have to try really, really hard to be a school mum because I am one. I am one. So we already have common ground, don't we? Kirsty and about a thousand other people in the congregation don't have to try really, really hard to relate to doctors. Well, maybe it's really quite challenging to relate to doctors, isn't it? But, but uh, you are one. So are you. There's some others that I can't actually spot right now this minute. You know, it's your group. Mike doesn't have to try really hard to relate to golfing types because he's weird. No, <laughs> You know, where's our natural place where we know the rules of the game? We know how the conversations work. We know what are the key issues for people. We know about our concerns and stresses and strains. Where's that group? Who are those people that we are going to relate to? Now... When Paul went to one group of Jews, he did have Timothy circumcised so that he could relate better to the culture. So there were times when efforts were made, but this was his normal group. He says, I became like those not having a law in order to reach those not having a law. Well, obviously, that's different, isn't it? So some of the Jewish restrictions were not required by the gospel. So when Paul went to speak to the Gentiles, he didn't have to bring all that baggage with him. But it was different. He was out of his comfort zone. He had to think harder about how to communicate. So when we find him um, in Acts chapter 17, sorry, have I been leaning on this? <laughs> um, in Acts chapter 17, he goes to the Areopagus and he takes their poets and he says, as your poets have said, I now explain to you, he made an effort. He had to work harder. And there are some situations where we have to make an effort. We have to think more, research more, understand more in order to communicate. And then he said, to those who are weak, I became as one who was weak. 1 Corinthians 8, which we've skipped over because it's picked up somewhere else again, the, the concept, talks about those who wouldn't eat food, sacrificed to idols, Animals were killed mainly in the temple, and then the wealthy would buy their meal and all eat together in the temple. Any meat that was left over was taken to the marketplace and sold on. And there were those who said, we can't buy that meat because we mustn't eat meat that's already been sacrificed to idols. And others said, look, it doesn't matter. Everything is good under God, so it doesn't matter. Paul says, to those who are weak, I became as one who is weak. If your imagination and conscience has been shaped under certain conditions for many years, it's not going to change overnight. Sometimes it needs patience to walk with people in things that are fine for you. God cares about how we use our freedom. And when we use our freedom carelessly, in a way that leads other people to be thrown off track, that concerns him. 
Somebody said, Christ gave up his life for us. Surely we can give up eating a meal for the sake of someone else. Sometimes we need to modify our behavior, what we think is okay, for the sake of someone else who might be set off course by something that we find fine. And that's particularly true if we're trying to reach people with the good news of Jesus. If our behavior, if things that we speak about, if the way that we speak, all sorts of other stuff around alcohol, maybe where we would go, it throws other people off track, then we need to modify that for the sake of those people. The second key message is this. Identification without losing identity. We used to be so, so clear on identity, the church, that we couldn't identify. We just kept ourselves in our little ghetto and we knew what we were like and the world out there, it was different and we weren't like that. And we couldn't reach people very well. Now we're very much better on the identification bit of it, almost to the point where we've lost our identity. It's a real challenge, isn't it, to hold those two things together, our identification without losing our identity. It's around getting alongside people. It's around making other people feel at ease. It's around keeping your bearings while entering their world. Phil's desperate for me to tell a story at this point, aren't you? <laughs> so one of the things that Phil found... <laughs> Just because you ran up there doesn't mean you can get away. He came across something genuinely true. Swinger evangelism. <laughs> genuinely true. I hope that you have an issue with that. <laughs> Even after the last three weeks. I hope you have an issue with it. Entering their world while keeping your bearings. Uh, that's, that's not that but actually in a more minor way. We have to be careful to mind ourselves around that. Walking with people, entering their world while keeping our bearings, keeping our identity whilst identifying with people. So, a little while ago, HSBC had the best series of adverts, and uh, I want us to watch one of them. It's set, apparently factually, in some Asian country, somewhere, and, uh, and just watch this.
maybe a message to uh, Martin and Ian. <laughs> Don't clear your plates. <laughs> they had another one as well. It was great. It was um, a, a youngish guy on a subway. And uh, again, I think it was uh, in, in Asia somewhere. And the, the custom is that if you're tired, you can fall asleep with your head on the shoulder of the person next to you on the subway. So this gentleman falls asleep, puts his head on the shoulder of this young man on the subway who looks extremely uncomfortable with this. And then he looks next to him. There's a particularly attractive young lady sitting next to him. He decides that maybe taking on that particular culture would be a good idea. <laughs> so... They have that strap line, don't they? Never underestimate the importance of local knowledge. It's about identifying, about your identity and identifying. It's about asking things. It's about listening. It's about understanding. Really asking. Genuinely wanting to understand. Genuinely listening. Listening with your ears and your eyes. Getting involved in the culture Understanding our context and our communication. Putting down our own agenda for the sake of really communicating with people. A little while ago, I went to a day organized by the Baptist Missionary Society. And uh, it was a series of talks. When I mean a series of talks, there was four before coffee, another four to lunch, then more and more and more. The bit I remember was one line before coffee. I'd lost the plot and the will to live as it went further on. And uh, it was a phrase used by the president of the Jamaican Baptist Union. And he told a story and he spoke about this, compassionate accompanying. And I like that. It's a lovely image. When we get alongside people, if they are weak, and we compassionately accompany them. We minister to them, but not doing it to them or for them, but with, with them. As we walk with Jesus and we walk with them, there is that compassionate accompanying. As individuals and as a church, that has to be our priority, doesn't it? With people, walking with them, with Jesus, not doing things to them or for them. Now, about 18 months ago, our lives were completely changed. They were completely transformed by Jess. Jess Whippet, that was Jess Whippet when we got her. She was about 10 months old. Jess has changed our lives. And uh, when we got Jess in the first week or so, uh, I went into the park with Joel. And um, it's a little bit like if you get a new car, everyone else has got the same car. So we walk in the park and there's Whippets. So we went over this particular um, lady, and uh, she had her whippet, and we were chatting to her. She also had, at that point, 13-month-old twins. So she was trying to manage the twins, who were at that kind of wandering around stage, obviously, in different directions, and the dog. And uh, so we spent some time talking to each other, and our dogs ran around together. Her dog was older, therefore well-behaved, therefore came back. And when Jess was with her, she came back too. So this was an amazing symbiotic relationship. So we exchanged mobile numbers and names, you know, dates of birth, everything else, <laughs> looking to the thought that we could maybe work together for the sake of the whippets. <laughs> As we were walking back uh, from the park, Joel said to me, um, isn't it funny, last week... These were just people who had dogs. 
And this week, it feels like their community. It's a good job one of us is profound in our family. (laughs) See, Jess is the difference between being an observer and being a participant. And as we talk about this subject together, we can easily be observers. Oh, yeah, must be must be good to do that. Must be nice. It's good that other people do that. But actually, there's a big, big difference, isn't there, between being an observer or a participant. And Jess has changed our lives, and we have had to count the cost. Of course, you count the cost in terms of money. You count the cost in terms of time. How an extra hour and a half has magically appeared in my day, I don't really know. But there's a cost in terms of time. There's a cost in terms of the right to stay in your bed on a cold, dark, and rainy morning. And then at the end of the day, when all you want to do is make a cup of tea and sit down with a chocolate digestive, but the dog needs walking. There's a cost whenever you participate in something. And we have to count the cost in terms of our engaging in sharing the gospel of Jesus. There are some limitations Choices that we now make, generally at the last minute when we suddenly remember, oh, we've got a dog. (laughs) But there are limitations. You have to lay stuff down. And of course, that's true, isn't it? In terms of reaching other people with the gospel of Jesus, we may have to put some limits on ourselves and what we will and won't do and how we will and won't behave and what choices we make. And Paul is absolutely and entirely clear about the purpose of it all. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I may save some. Don't talk about saving people very much anymore, do we really? That I might win some. He says, I'm doing all this so that people can know Jesus. So that people can know Jesus. Because I've met him, and so I want them to meet him. My life has been transformed by Jesus, so I want their lives to be transformed by Jesus. And whether it's the things that we do as individuals or the things that we do together as a church, our purpose, ultimately, is that people might know Jesus. And that may take a good long while, and there may be a lot of steps involved in that. And that involves the things that Ruth has spoken about so brilliantly this morning. It involves providing a a wardrobe and a bunch of flowers and and really solid, backed-up advice that will change lives. But somewhere in there, I know that Ruth and Jennifer long for that lady to know Jesus. You know, there has to be that end point because he's the one that's changed us. He's our motivation, not just the right answer. That's what we want to see, isn't it? And just at the end of this chapter, and I just um, want to say a few things about it, not too many. He talks about, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one wins the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So, last Sunday... This was me, last Sunday morning, 
half marathon and Vicky and Mike, who's not here today. And we, we ran, that's Tarn House, we ran from Coniston, we ran around Tarn House. This is the one and only occasion that I was smiling. It says, smile photographer, all right? <laughs> it was really hot. We were pretty rubbish, weren't we? Yeah. We were really slow. We mostly wanted to walk and did walk. I set my aim as how many new friends I could make to distract myself <laughs> from the running. <laughs> I literally knew people by name by the end of the race and everything about their lives, all right? <laughs> this is the woman who won the race, all right? She is a female winner of the race. Now, we had to run one and a half times around town house. It was about halfway through the course. She passed me on the other side there, okay? She started an hour after our race started. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing like feeling depressed. <laughs> she, was win she was running to win. She was running to win. I said to Vicky when I, I, I read this passage on Monday morning, and I texted her this verse um, from the message. Um, was, it, was it, every good athlete trains hard? I said, that's where we're going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we go wrong. Every good athlete trains hard. She's a good runner. A good athlete trains hard. She was running to win. Her purpose was clear. Mine was just to finish. Even that was optimistic. She was running to win. Everything about her life will have been, in some measure, changed by her desire to win. Because that's what it takes. That's why I can't do it, because I'm not willing to do that. Paul says, runners run to gain a crown that won't last. And whether it's a gold medal that tarnishes or one of those laurel wreath crowns that within a few days is brown and withered, he says they're just doing it for something that won't last. It's not really that important at the end of the day. He says, but we're doing it for something that will last forever. Something that will last forever. And on that day when we see Jesus face to face, when we spend eternity in his presence, the crown that we want is the fact that people we love and people that we know and people we just met will be there too, isn't it? Because if it's the best place to spend eternity, is that not where we'd kind of like the people we'd like to spend eternity? Maybe even a few of the ones we don't like. We do it to win a prize that will last forever. Towards the end of the race, I, obviously, people say, what do you do? So that kind of somewhat opens up the conversation, doesn't it? So I have lots of conversations about faith whilst trying to run a half marathon. <laughs> Demanding. At the end, the lady next to me, she went, we, we both of us want, nearly want to die at this point, right? She, says, she said, I've got to the point of sending out prayers. <laughs> I said, prayers are good. She said, are you a Christian? And it made me realize 
how easy the conversation was. She was a Christian. She started it, not me. I just responded. How easy was it, actually, for her to say that? Suddenly, then she started quoting Bible verses at me. Less good. Right. <laughs> We're doing this for something eternal. Something eternal. So whether it's just, I know it's really hard. Please don't hear me say it isn't. I know it is, but a lot of our workplaces are not very conducive. But any way that you can live for Christ, it may be something you say, it may be something you do, it may be your attitude and your character. It may be how you deal with rubbish stuff that happens in your life. It's not about being perfect. But wherever you are, Jesus is. So you don't have to try more than that, okay? Wherever you are, he is. It's about taking that reality, living in it, honouring it for the sake of eternity for people to know Jesus. That'll do.